Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Refold Podcast, where we talk about everything related to language learning. My name is Clayton, also known as George Pig, and I manage the community here at Refold. Today, our guest is Levi the Language Guy. Some of you may recognize him from Reddit and Discord, where he goes by the handle Zephyrt. He has an Anki Deck project where he has Anki Decks for over 137 languages. All right, and I am here with Zephyr. So, Zephyr, do you want to go ahead and like introduce yourself? Because people in the Refold community may not know who you are. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm uh, Zephyrd, uh, is how many people pronounce my name. I'm, I'm also known as Levi. It's just my first name. Uh, sometimes Levi the language guy. But I uh, make a whole bunch of kind of short survival Anki phrase decks for every single language I can get a hold of, pretty much. Uh, I've got a website where I post them all online for free under a Creative Commons share-alike license, teaches 200 survival words and phrases, and I've almost got about 140 languages now. 140 languages. I thought I thought you were at 88 uh, based on a post that I saw, I and mean, it seems like you've basically doubled that. <laughs> yeah, uh, the number's gone up quite a bit recently. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, so you're kind of well known for your 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 language deck project, uh, Zephyr's Complete Languages, I believe. Uh, but what is sort of like your history with the language learning community? Because although we've not really directly interacted, we've kind of been in the same spaces for years. You know, active on Reddit, um, active on like different Discords. Um, so, what's your background there? So I first uh kind of got interested in languages in late middle school i'd had a little bit of a language exposure um and in my neighborhood there was many people who came from romania and i would hear romanian a lot and uh i also uh, took spanish as many american students do and um did horribly in all of my Spanish classes. Um, but I uh, got really interested in anime and manga and stuff in late middle school. I think my whole last uh, semester of eighth grade was just studying Japanese in my Spanish class, which my Spanish teacher let me do. And um, when I transitioned into high school, I started getting really serious about Japanese study, but also really involved in Duolingo. Uh, I discovered Duolingo. I thought Duolingo was super cool. Um, I got involved in a Discord server that was kind of meant to be an unofficial Duolingo Discord server. I was one of the first people to join it, and the creator was very young and didn't quite know how to run a Discord server, so I, I helped him grow it. I connected it with a whole bunch of... Uh, Reddit communities, and it eventually went on to become the official Duolingo Discord server whenever they turned down the forms. But um, in high school, I uh, I went to a very diverse high school. It was the only high school that had a uh, English second language program. 
and I joined the Cultural Diversity Club and uh, was able to spend almost every day speaking just a couple different languages that I would just kind of write down on some flashcards. Uh, I, I would have like one language per flashcard with like 20 basic phrases and I'd have like 10 of them. And then just throughout the day, I could go through the hallways and speak 10 different languages, just pull out my flashcards and try to talk with some of the foreign exchange students and English second language students. And that's where I really started to get like interested in languages uh, more broadly was through the Duolingo community and through my in-person experience in school. And in addition to your deck project, um, like you said, you were sort of a, an early adopter of like the Duolingo Discord. You used to be very active on Reddit, very vocal when these language apps like Duolingo, LingoDeer, uh, LingApp would make changes that you disagreed with. Um, you're sort of yeah. very passionate about calling them out on bad changes. And at some point, I think you kind of stopped doing that. Uh, what caused you to lose faith in some of these companies, these apps? So um, when I when I first discovered Duolingo, I thought it was like super awesome. Like it, it was like gamified and I'm a big gamer. Uh, you can see a VR headset over there. <laughs> Um, and I, I thought the gamification and stuff was really cool and I saw so much potential in it, but it felt like they weren't really believing in their own vision. They weren't really utilizing the aspects of gamification that I thought they should be using. And when I first got involved in the Duolingo forms, uh, there was a lot of open communication, not necessarily between Duolingo itself and the users, but I remember there was a a big master post that would come out every week where they would go over all the new courses that were getting updated, like which ones are coming out, what the progress was, and it had all the course contributors being really active in it. And um, it, it was fantastic because you got to talk directly with the, the course creators. It had like a really kind of small community vibe, but like everybody was able to like get a word in and like talk about the courses and like discuss, you know, like what they felt was good or bad about the courses and, you know, actually make an impact within the community. But eventually it reached a point where um, it got, it, this was run by a user, not by Duolingo, this weekly form post. It got to a point where it was getting difficult to moderate and so he shut down all the comments on these weekly posts. And at that point, um, the little bit of interaction that, you know, we were able to get between like the users and the course creators and stuff almost completely ended. And um, if I wanted to make myself heard, you know, I could make a big post on Duolingo uh, and then it would get drowned out after... <laughs> you know, like a couple days, because that's how the Duolingo forms work. Um, or I could make it on Reddit. And Reddit was a place that I was able to make posts that uh, would have a bit more staying power um, and that I could be heard in. And just as time went on, Duolingo got progressively less and less open um and less and less communicative with the community they eventually shut down the forms uh which was a great tragedy but 
I mean, there wasn't really anything to the forums at that point because they shut down all the channels where people did communicate with each other on the forums. And so that that's largely what made me transition to Reddit and start talking about Duolingo on Reddit and kind of trying to help steer them back on the right path. But they're a very big kind of corporate entity and they, uh, they mostly listen to their own analytics, not so much to the users. Um, I really liked LingoDeer because I very early in the release, I got in contact with them. Like I just straight up messaged them on Facebook and had like a master list of ideas and stuff of like, this is how you should change things to make this better. Like this is where I found some mistakes and they were very communicative. I was able to talk to some of the higher ups at LingoDeer very quickly. And, um, that's how I kind of started working with them for a while. And then I eventually worked for them, um, kind of as a community management intern. And so long as the communication was going well, uh, you know, even if they didn't take all my ideas, so long as they were communicative, I was like, wow, this is way better than Duolingo. Like this is the kind of app that I want to support so long as they are engaging with the community and not isolating themselves in some ivory tower like Duolingo did. Um, but eventually over time, LingoDeer started, uh, it it got into this struggle where they couldn't quite figure out how to monetize it properly because originally it was free, but they did want to monetize it later and that wasn't necessarily a problem. Um, I advocated that they use more gamified strategies for monetization, like the kinds of things that you see in modern MMORPGs and stuff. Um, and more freemium based, but uh, they wanted to keep kind of a traditional subscription model and the price range they kind of knew wasn't going to be very popular news. So they, they slowly slowed down and just started communicating less and less and less with the community. And um, at that point, I ended up kind of parting ways when it felt like I wasn't really able to have any kind of impact anymore like the communication that was coming to me was beginning to be less like, oh, well, what's a good way that we can word this to get engagement and more, what's a good way we can word this so people will hate us slightly less? <laughs> and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> um, and after that, uh, I eventually just kind of shifted focus more to eventually my own project uh, my website and stuff and kind of making some of my own courses, but I didn't really engage as much in the community outside of the occasional, like our language learning posts. Cause I didn't want to, you know, be like spamming my own, uh, things or, um, you know, uh, well, I, I just didn't really have a whole lot to engage with. I, I, Anytime there's like new releases for like new apps or something, I'll often reach out to the developers and offer to help them with like consulting and things. And I've gotten to do that with a lot of applications, especially language learning games like Influent, like uh, the new one that just recently got uh, kickstarted, Newcomer, um, Translation, Lingotopia, things like that. And I've graduated college and just kind of started living life too so that's always a big change so do you want to elaborate on your project you mentioned uh that you kind of pulled away from some of the the, the 
the corps, the corporations, and focused on your own project. So you said earlier you have over 140 languages supported now, right? Almost 140. Almost um, 140. There's still a couple in the cooker, um, and I'm always collecting more, but I think I had like 137 top-level languages, and then some of those courses have like additional courses. Like I have multiple Nahuatl courses, I have multiple like Vietnamese courses, etc. Yeah, do you want to just tell us about your project? Right. So, um, I've always really liked Anki. Um, that was one of the things that I found just consistently worked. Like, there's a lot of things I like about gamification and like attracting users to like study every day or whatever. But there's also a lot of fluff that I feel like. You know, a lot of people just kind of want to learn a language efficiently and like clearly not have to like worry about, you know, a whole bunch of extra frivolous things. Like they want to get the most important information as soon as possible. And that's where Anki is spectacular. It's super good for uh, both short-term and long-term study. And uh, it was one of the earliest tools that I had started using for myself and that has just remained consistently good. It hasn't been ruined or, you know, um, really infringed upon in any way. Um, but I really liked Anki and it was open source, easy to work with. Um, and as I started shifting away from some of these these other apps, I started kind of making my own personal decks of like, okay, if I wanted to learn Japanese, if I wanted to learn Korean, if I wanted to learn Chinese, what is the smallest amount of words and phrases I can get away with that I can just cram into one course that once you finish it, you can survive in the language. Like you might not understand 95% of what's said, but you can get by in situations where you're speaking with a monolingual. Right. So that sort of um, answers my next question is how did you arrive at 200 as the, the number for your course? It was, it was originally 150 and I realized that was a little too small, <laughs> but I, um, I originally got a lot of inspiration from Omniglot. Uh, that was one of the resources that I used way, way back in high school, back when I was making those like flashcards that would have like a whole bunch of phrases on it. I would just look up the language that I wanted to learn on Omniglot and I'd write down those phrases. And I felt like it had a pretty good list of phrases to like just get you started, but it felt like slightly too little to really be like get you to that level where you could survive without English. It was just enough to be friendly. And I thought that would be a good start. And then I could look at um, the things that you, you commonly encounter in travel phrase books. And also, uh, I looked a lot at uh, YouTube polyglots. Uh, that I was kind of started making this around the time that I discovered a lot of the popular YouTube polyglots, like Laoshu, um, of course, Xiao Maniac, and Iken are pretty big in that scene now as well. Uh, where they just kind of go out and like speak with random people in a whole bunch of languages. Oftentimes they don't speak all of those languages, like 20 languages to the level of like a native speaker or something, but um, 
they learn like a couple like key survival phrases that are just really, really useful to keeping the conversation going in their target language. And they learn this in a bunch of languages. And while a lot of people kind of like criticize these like language polyglots, sometimes rightly so, they've created some unhealthy expectations in places. Uh, I do think that they were onto something and what's necessary to get people out speaking comfortably as soon as possible. And so I also studied a lot of their content to see what phrases were they were frequently using, what were they using to keep the conversation going, and what were they using to essentially stay in their target language the entire time. Right. So here at Refill, we, we usually take um, a very input-heavy approach. Uh, a lot of people delay speaking until after they they understand officially like a TV show. That's sort of the recommendation. Um, your approach is based on having enough vocab to ask for more vocab, right? right? The idea is that you have a base level to start communicating. So by the end of one of your courses, ideally, you'd be able to say, you know, what is this? And they'll say, that's a spoon. And how do you say this? And some of the basic readings. Right. So it's sort of a very old school, you know, fluent in three months sort of language hacking approach, which is cool. Uh, it's different from refold. And I think all, all methods have a place. Um, but definitely, uh, I know that at refold, we, we favor like taking um, like corpora and analyzing them and the frequency of words and then having people learn those words. And I don't think that's perfect either because some very, very so-called basic words don't come up that often in, uh, you know, your, your corpus of drama or your corpus of books. Uh, it could be a word like Monday. It might be a really rare word, but it's a basic word that you should know if you're learning a language. Um, so I definitely think there's a place for things like Duolingo or even a survival deck, like the, you know, the Zephyr Complete Language Project. So, now, uh, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say that um, my courses aren't meant to be people's like be all end all, especially mm -hmm. at that low of a level. Um, one of the big things is that I do, one of the things that I do agree with language polyglots on, like the kind of YouTube polyglots on, is that uh, a lot of people really psych themselves out of like speaking to others and like using the language when you don't actually need that high of a level to start speaking with people. And what I've found in my own personal life and stuff is that if it's very important to identify your motivations for why you're learning the language. But if you just want to have an impact with the language, if you want to get kind of like emotionally attached to the language and feel like you're getting like use out of it in a positive way, even just learning hello and using that with like a stranger dramatically can brighten their day. If, especially if it's like a language that is not so well known and may open opportunities for friendships or all sorts of other like good positive things. Um, and so while I almost always encourage people to go beyond my courses and I, I include a card template uh, and instructions on my website on how to expand beyond that, uh, really you, you could just, after finishing my course, go to the refold website and then just use your guys's 1K uh, immediately after to a very similar effect 
Um, but the, the big thing is that I want people to get a victory early on. I want them to have like a very identifiable benchmark where motivation can be the most like iffy in the beginning. You know, they can say that they've learned to survive with a language very early. And then that's one victory that they can step off of moving forward into the language. And I will say survival level is actually surprisingly low. Right. So about two years ago, we did some research into uh, CASA testing, which is like a U.S. government sort of test for ESL speakers. And the bar for what they consider survival English is actually about what I would say a little bit more than your deck. Um, so even the U.S. government agrees that it's like, you know, if somebody's speaking to you very slowly and deliberately using body language, you can communicate, you can order food, you can open a bank account. Um, and I think that's great. And I definitely see in the refold community, people who are afraid to output, we call it output anxiety. These are people who they put in thousands of hours with the language, and then they, they don't actually speak with a native speaker. And I have seen uh, a lot of people who sort of come in from a language hacking sort of output heavy approach and they mix it with an input heavy approach and they do really well um, because they don't have that output anxiety and they're okay making mistakes and they're not, they're not psyching themselves down. So I definitely think there is some synergy between the two approaches. Right. And I, I'm also a heavy advocate of as much immersion as you can possibly get as soon as possible. Uh, in my mind, getting to a point where you can comfortably start speaking with others can open the door to a lot of immersion environments that people wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable with before, so long as they have access to a native speaker. Um, I, I had a friend of mine that I played Stardew Valley with uh, when he was learning Japanese, and right after he finished my Japanese survival course, he was at a level where I could go through and I could play Stardew Valley entirely in Japanese, and I could speak to him entirely in Japanese. And even if he didn't understand most of what I was saying or most of what was going on in the game, he knew all the questions necessary to at least get through the day, survive, and kind of pick up a couple new words each day that we could add into the Anki deck. Now, you offer a lot of languages. Like you said earlier, you said like any language you can get your hands on. Yeah. So how does that process work? Uh, one of the questions that the community had was like, this is great, but how does Zephyr monitor for quality? You know, obviously no person speaks 137 languages. Right. Yeah. So how does, how does that process work from like top to bottom, like getting, you know, getting volunteers, getting audio, some courses have audio, some don't, and then like maintaining a consistent quality through them? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, sometimes I don't even feel like I speak English that great. But <laughs> um, so when, when I first started, I um, I did the, the three languages or the four languages that I was learning. And I was already comfortable enough in Japanese and Korean that I could just fill out all the translations myself uh, because I was just beyond the survival level for those languages. And um, I reached out to some natives uh, for Vietnamese and for Chinese to get full translations done by those. And then I took all of my courses and I had them checked by other natives. So 
I filled out the translations for Korean and Japanese, but I had a Japanese speaker and a Korean speaker go through, edit it, review it, fix all the areas that they felt like, even if they weren't mistakes, maybe could have been worded better. Um, and then I also had the Chinese and Vietnamese uh, translated by a native and then double checked by a separate native. And over the years that I've been doing this, um, I, I've kind of put out, all these courses are translated by volunteers that are either native speakers, uh, have are like academics that have, like, have access to native speakers, um, and I have them double checked by other native speakers wherever possible. And, and there's some languages that I get that are very, very obscure. And the unfortunate answer is, is that there may not be a way to double check it um, for quite a while. Like I, I reach for every opportunity. I always invite people to uh, kind of like give some constructive criticism for my courses and stuff. Like I want people to come in with a wrecking ball and be like, oh, well, this is, you know, terrible. This is awful. And I, I've had numerous times where I, I had like translations for like Dutch and for like Filipino and they'd been translated by numerous natives and like very well accredited natives, like teachers of the language. And then other natives come in, they're like, oh, this isn't how I speak at all. And I essentially had to get like a committee of like five different natives, all with decent accreditations to come in and collectively agree upon translations for me. But that I, I get the translations, I uh, have them double checked by natives while I go through the course, cause I hand digitize it. I don't just, um, I don't just like automate it with like a script or anything. I hand type all these in. Um, I'm also kind of checking to see if it makes sense to me as a learner. And if there's anything that like stands out as I'm like digitizing this, like, wait, hold up, this is a Slavic language and there's normally gender here. Why isn't there gender here? And then I'll go and I'll, you know, double check these things on like Wikitionary on Omniglot. Um, if needed, I'll go and I'll find other natives to kind of like check something. And I, I've had numerous times that I've just sat on courses that like I got halfway through and I was like, oh, there, there's something in here that makes me not confident in releasing this. So I, I have my assistant, the Sensinator, who uh, just got his bachelor's degree in linguistics. And he has been an immense help at every single stage because he has so many uh, resources to like look up a lot of these more obscure languages and help me figure out and understand what's going on when the translations may not be entirely clear, maybe slightly questionable. Um, have you ever had like a, a language where your, your format did not work so well? Um, so... Like like I'm wondering, like I don't know, like um, one of the polysynthetic languages in like Canada or something, where it's sort of hard to have these phrase translations or something. It's definitely been interesting that um, some of the people that I've had to get translations from at times, 
didn't always speak English perfectly, so they didn't always know how to translate everything. And I've also had numerous people just straight up say, oh, well, there's no way to translate this into English. And um, it, it's definitely true that, you know, languages are different and they don't always translate one to one. I try to translate the core essence of like what's being used. So like maybe they don't have a way to say hello, but they probably do greet each other somehow. <laughs> and it's actually so pretty common. People who have not undergone linguistics or like sort of dabbled in a bunch of languages like we have are not aware that some languages just don't have a, a generic word for hello. Right. Based on time of day or relationship to like social status. Right. And I, one of the nice things about this being a, a course that I like hand digitize and that uh, I make on an individual basis and that I run through personally with a, with a fine comb is that I, I don't have to follow the format strictly. I can take a, a phrase and they're like, oh, well, there's no way to say this exactly in English. And then I'm like, okay, well, what would you normally say? I'll just change the English translation on the card to fit what you normally say. And then they're like, oh, okay. I, I see a lot of like apps on like the app store that'll be like phrase books and stuff. And you could tell that they just took like a single pass and just said, oh, translate in like these hard coded phrases and they don't change the English at all to fit the language but in my case I, i'm perfectly willing to change the english and, and in cases where um courses have grammatical have like gender like who you're speaking to changes the way you speak or who's speaking to you um or when they have like really important formality levels even if it involves tripling the card count i will fill in all of those variations and I'll, I'll put like little annotations and stuff that say, you know, like, this is how women would say it. This is how men would say it. And those will be separate cards. Um, so I think that's really cool because actually you've dispelled what I think a lot of people are probably thinking is that it was just cookie cutter phrases. And it seems like you customize, you take into account that some languages have gendered verbs, right? Like if a man says it, it would sound different. Either the verb would be different or they would use a different word. Um, like in Japanese, I guess, or it, a Slavic language. Right. Um, so that is that is cool. Uh, do you have a course that you're most proud of? One that you were like, yeah, it's cool that I actually got this language done. So especially early on, uh, a lot of my courses, I got all the audio from Forvo. I also got permission from Omniglot to use some of their audio as well. Um, and I was using like audio from Forvo and stuff. And so uh, sometimes the audio would be pretty nice for some languages, but sometimes you just couldn't cover all the phrases. So there'd be like these patches and holes and like what the audio covered. And sometimes some of the languages I got were so obscure that there's just like no audio on Forvo at all, especially any of any good quality. And so that's been one of the things that I've had the biggest challenges in like improving my courses with is, you know, like I make a bunch of courses and a lot of them don't have audio, especially nowadays, because I'm getting into really obscure languages. But eventually I started having some volunteers that would come in and uh, record audio for various languages. And I was pretty surprised when I was able to get full, like, pretty good audio 
for both northern, central, and southern dialect Vietnamese. Like, it, I could definitely imagine like a northern like Vietnamese course and like a southern Vietnamese course, but the fact I even got central dialect is just so like wild to me. I also um, uh, saw Shetlandic Scots uh, on wiki tongues. And the person who was like recording for the Shetlandic Scots uh, was apparently some like famous uh, poet. And they, they like had their contact information. And I was like, you know what? Why not? Let's contact this person and see if they could help me get Shetlandic Scots. And like a couple months passed and there was no word back. And then finally they get back to me and they're like, oh, well, I'm going to connect you with the local government. And they would be interesting interested in helping you uh make a course and so i was able to work with the uh, local organization in the shetland islands and get a full audio course for shetlandic scots all right now that is interesting so central vietnamese and shetlandic scots full audio yeah and i've got a lot of other courses like one of my ancestral languages is Limburgish, and I was able to work with uh, the like official standardizing body for Limburgish in the Netherlands to actually get multiple courses for Limburgish out, but they don't have audio, unfortunately. Um, I've recently been kind of putting in some of my own money into buying audio off Fiverr to kind of upgrade some of my major languages, but in the meantime, also making more and more courses for just anywhere on the map that I haven't quite covered yet or that I can get people to volunteer for. Now, you don't take money for your, your courses. They're totally free, right? Right. Yeah. No, it's completely unmonetized. or is it nope. purely donate your time? Uh, yeah, just donate your time. If if anybody wants to help me, uh, the best ways to help would be to do my courses and point out if there's any mistakes or if you speak a language that's not currently covered. Um, I would love to work with you to make it available. Um, those are the those are the main things. <laughs> now. Central Vietnamese is interesting because it's actually very divergent. Uh, people compare north right. and south, but I hear that the, the center dialect is actually one of the most difficult uh, and most divergent from the other two standards. So with oh, yeah. languages like, um, like Limburgish, uh, they do not probably have like a standardized orthography used by the speakers. How does that work when you get a primarily spoken language, uh, a language that's not written in standard spelling for example yeah it's an it's an increasingly more common problem at the level of languages i'm working with now um so i try to you know first find the most authoritative like authoritative people that i can um to make a course uh i in, in a lot of cases i'll find speakers like native speakers that speak a language like say like Tochu or like Shang or Gan Chinese or something, but they're not literate. <laughs> um, they don't know how to write in their own language. And that's really common. Um, <clears throat> right. You see it a lot with like uh, the 
the government in the states in places with a lot of refugees will put signage up and it'll be like this signage here is in Hmong or something and the Hmong speakers don't actually know how to read in you know uh their, their language right a lot of languages right. are just mostly spoken right um so i i try to like first off find people that are either literate or i try to find people that are good enough at english that we can kind of look at some of like the linguistic standards like if you go on wikipedia there's some way I haven't encountered too many languages where there just straight up isn't an orthography. Like some linguist somewhere has made some kind of orthography. And if they're willing to put in the time, we'll kind of work together to use one of those. Um, I did have one case like where I covered uh, a Dong language, like Gam, uh, which is a minority language in China. And the guy made his own orthography. And so I made a course in that but then discovered there was a government standard and he worked with me to also put it entirely in the government standard as well. Very cool. So I like, if there isn't a standard, I try to work with the native speaker to kind of help them make one and try to get it posted somewhere like on Omniglot. So that way it's accessible. Uh, but I've been fortunate enough that while not everybody knows how to write inside the languages that I've covered, um, linguists have still created orthographies for almost all of the ones that I've covered. And so it's been a lot easier to put it that way. And, and sometimes like with Swiss German, um, I have four different Swiss German courses. And I mean, the orthography is a little all over the place. Like they, there isn't really a standard orthography and they just kind of filled it in how they would write it. And I, I was just like, okay, I'll just make this as local to you as I can. Like you're a native speaker, you know how you use it. That's fine. And I'm just going to cover as many dialects as I can, you know, that people are willing to translate to. And if anybody comes in, that's like a more authoritative source, that's like, oh, well, there's a standardized way to write this or something. I'll be like, go ahead. <laughs> like I, I am happy to have that kind of uh, that kind of feedback, like. <clears throat> so we've been mostly talking about spoken language. What about signed languages? Do you ever envision your project taking those on American Sign Language, French Sign Language, Nicaraguan Sign Language? Um, because I feel like we in the language learning community kind of we have this sort of bias towards spoken language, right? Because like. Most of us are hearing people. Um, I myself have never dabbled in a signed language ever, but I think that it would be cool if there were some signed languages out there in things like your course or Glossica, these sort of mass language courses. So I do want to cover sign languages. Uh, my mother is hard of hearing and her hearing just continues to get worse. And she doesn't really have a whole lot of interest in taking sign language courses because my dad won't learn <laughs> sign language. Most likely they're pretty content with just texting each other. But uh, that has definitely opened my eyes a lot more as a language nerd to kind of the utility and usefulness of sign language. When I was in college, I joined a language group and a lot of the language 
like users in there, language learners in there, learn sign language. And I thought it seemed really cool. And I definitely see a way that it could be done in my courses, but it's going to take much, much more work than any of the other languages. Cause I'm essentially going to have to embed GIFs or like short mm -hmm. little videos of people doing it in the course. And I already rely on my volunteers a lot. And I really appreciate this whole project would not be possible without my volunteers whatsoever. I really appreciate all the volunteers who put in it all the time that they do uh, to make my courses possible. But that's a lot to ask of a sign language volunteer. I've kind of put out like some interest in stuff that I would want to make a sign language course, but uh, there is also a lot of uh, sign language courses that already exist. And in a lot of ways, the sign language community, especially in the United States, has suffered from a lot of discrimination and a lot of marginalization. And so I want to be careful that I'm not, you know, like, there's a lot of focus in the community to kind of highlight the sign language courses made by native sign language speakers and things like that. And I completely understand that. I, I completely respect that. So I try not to like push people. I, I don't want to like twist people's arm into making a course that people in the community don't want if there's already courses made by native speakers that they prefer. Um, but I always just kind of try to put the offer out there that if anybody does want to work with me, if anybody does, uh, want to make courses according to the standard that I have on my website. And, you know, the, the big thing about my website is accessibility. I want all of these courses to be available in one place. So that way, anybody that likes just browsing through all the course selections on Duolingo can get that same kind of enjoyment looking through the courses on my website and just seeing what's available, knowing that it's all kept to a similar standard. Um, short answer, yes, I do want to cover those. It's just, as I said, a lot of work. And we, of course, want to be sensitive to the communities that speak it. For sure. Uh, uh, that's one thing that speakers of languages like English is that we tend to have this bias that like nobody owns a language. But you see it a lot with like indigenous language communities where like they necessarily, you know, maybe they've been burned in the past by outsiders or um, some groups just don't want you to, to, to learn their, you know, their language or they want to have more control over it. And it's definitely a um, something to be sensitive about. Right. And it, it can get a little complicated. Um, I've definitely had to uh, work through some of these issues myself, but uh, you know, some people, want to teach their language, others don't. I just try to be kind of as respectful as I can while also acknowledging the desires of like, no, no course is possible to be made unless a native speaker works with me to make it. Like I, I'm not gonna work with some person who doesn't actually speak the language or is like trying to like go behind a community's back to like teach the language or whatever. Like the, the only time a course gets made is if there's somebody in the community that's wanting to push the way that they speak into a course and help others learn. Um, so that's where I, I'm a bit more proactive than a lot of other uh, language like courses and stuff like Omniglot. I'm fairly certain they just kind of take whatever stuff gets offered to them. I go out 
and I actually contact people. I like contact communities and I try to find if there's anybody interested, make people aware of what my courses are and if there's anybody interested in volunteering for them. But again, I don't want to twist anybody's arm. Um, and it's all completely voluntary. I've, I've even had people ask me to take down a course before. Um, and I respected that decision. I, I was able to replace it with another course. Um, it was for Breton, but um, I, I was able to get translations to make another Breton course, but I try to be as respectful to the translators and to the community as possible. All right. So you actually have experiences where the community uh, requested that a course be taken down. Right. So looking at your map, you have like a very, very, very detailed map. It's not at the uh, country level. It's actually like at sub regional levels or something on your website. Yeah, um, I don't even think that's the most updated map. Okay, because it, it looks like there are some gaps. So I, I noticed that like Australia, parts of Africa and uh, parts of the Americas don't actually have a lot of filled in stuff. Right. So what would you say like the challenges are? So I, I kind of feel like there's a technology gap um, between the global north and the global south, um, where I feel like it's actually kind of hard. For example, I was very surprised to see like support for like Amharic is really low, despite them being a language with like 50 million speakers. Um, it's not like exactly a small language, right? And like we, we think right. about like Norwegian, it's got like 5 million, right? There's just not a lot of support out there. Like you go to like different ebook sites to get ebooks. They don't exist in Amharic. They don't exist in Oromo. All of these sort of like global South languages, Indian languages, um, African languages. Do you feel like that matches up with your experience, like trying to get volunteers that maybe, you know, I imagine like it's very easy to support a smaller language in Europe than a bigger language in, say, India or somewhere in Africa? Kind of. Um, what I've done in the cases, so there's a lot of people in India, in Africa that are online, but they don't occupy the same spaces that we do. Right. And they're on Facebook and, and WhatsApp. Right. Um, and I, I've had to, you know, go through like with like some Russian minority languages. I've had to go through like Russian social media and like Chinese like social VK. media. Yeah. And um, something that like I found uh, an invaluable resource to me, like I have to I have to talk about it just because it's been so incredibly useful is the app Tandem. Um, I'm probably not using Tandem as it's intended because <laughs> uh, I'm pretty much scouting people out. But there is a lot of people in Tandem that come from Africa, that come from uh, like Siberia, that, that come from Latin America and stuff that speak a very wide variety of like these less popular languages. And they have technology, they have a phone and they you know, use these apps and stuff, but they don't really have too many people to like speak with because not too many people learn their language and not too many people know how, not too many people know that they exist um, or where to find them. And so I'm often able to go and essentially just find whatever languages I haven't gotten yet on Tandem 
and I can um, ha work with them to like make a course and maybe have it checked by a couple other people within that community. And then the idea is, is that, you know, like I want to encourage people to kind of pick up these languages. Like if the resource is there, I feel like more people will start to learn it and um, more people will be aware of it. And as people start to learn it, redirect them back to tandem so that way these people have more people to speak with essentially now speaking of like hooking people up uh you have a discord server associated with your project do you want to talk about it i don't really know how it's used or do people go in there and like volunteer like say hey i'm a speaker of this language can can they meet up like because there's a, sometimes it's a technical uh, you know people learn from each other and then it makes it easier the more everybody knows and the more they can do on their own, the more things can get done. So like, it sounds like your project is very collaborative. So do people use your Discord server in that like manner? So I've hosted and run a lot of Discord servers that were on the more language exchange-y kind of side. I mean, including the Duolingo Discord, which I'm not the owner of anymore. I stepped down as I got busy with other things, but um, my server wasn't really meant to replace that purpose. Like, I still want to encourage everybody to, like, get involved in their local community or get involved in online communities and places like VRChat, Tandem, various Discord servers to speak with native speakers and stuff. But my, court, my Discord is specifically just for kind of getting updates on my courses live as they happen. It's kind of the main news feed that I use for updating people when new courses come out. And also as a point of contact that if anybody wants to like work with me to like fix an error in a course or they, you know, discover my project on my discord and they want to do translations uh, for their language, which I haven't covered yet. That's another use for my discord. Um, a, a lot of times I go out and I try to like reach out to people on like Reddit or whatever. Um, but sometimes people do discover me uh, a little less than initially. Like initially I had a lot of people that just kind of volunteered languages to me. Now it, it's kind of hit critical mass where a lot of the languages that I don't have are a lot of the smaller ones. I have a lot of the national level languages. So when people come to me, they're like, oh, well, can I help with this? Yeah, you can help check it. We already have a course for it. <laughs> All right, interesting. Yeah. So you're very proactive in getting volunteers. You go out and you reach out to people. And with so many languages sort of on the back burner, how do you decide like what gets priority? Right, because there's only one of you and so much time to go around. So, say you've got three languages that are being worked on. How do you decide which gets priority? Which go? Excuse me. Which goes out? Yeah, um, there was a a while. I mean, it, it can be pretty arbitrary at times because um, I do this just in my spare time as kind of a hobby. Sometimes I just look at a language and I'm like, okay, this would be really. I feel like making a language today, and this would just be a really easy one to make. And so I'll just go through and just bust out a course then. Um, my assistant, the Sensinator, uh, who's a mod on my Discord server, he, he's part of the reason that my course count has jumped up so much because he made, like, just in the past, like, month, almost 40 language courses himself. Um, a lot of energy in that guy. <laughs> but I, I really appreciate it. Um, 
and, and he's incredibly knowledgeable in a lot of the areas that I'm not like in African languages and Middle Eastern languages and stuff where I, I can't like read Arabic at all. So I can't really fact check the Arabic very well, but he can. So it, it makes it much, much easier for me to have him look at those languages because he, he understands the grammar and the writing system a lot better. But yeah, I've also I've, done... I've run into him a few times in the lingo yeah. sphere. I think his name is Josh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Josh the Cincinnator. Yep. And um, yeah, I seem yeah. to him recall him being big into Swahili at one point. Yeah, yeah. He he really likes Swahili, Arabic, Burmese. Uh, he he takes all the fun languages. <laughs> but um, I I really appreciate him a lot. Uh, there there's so much of this that would not have gotten done nearly as fast without him. Um, and really all my, all my volunteers, they're all fantastic. They, this whole project wouldn't exist without them. But, um, yeah, the, there's a lot of times that I'll just put it open to like random poll. Like I'll just, I do a census like once a year and like somebody like requests in the census, like, oh, I really wish you had your Kyrgyz course done. And I was like, say less. <laughs> all right. When? We are nearing, um, we're nearing the hour mark. But before we go, is there anything you want to like say to the the people listening? Um, so regardless of what resources you use, um, one of the big things that I want to promote with my language courses is that uh, language learning isn't easy but the benefits for it are immense and you don't have to go very far in your language learning journey before you can start reaping some of those rewards. Um, even if it's just making somebody smile by being able to say hello in their language, like in the grocery store or something. Um, at a, even at the lowest levels of like what you see in my survival courses, uh, you have a dramatic impact in being able to make people's day essentially. And so I, I highly encourage, you know, everybody to pick up like whatever languages that they're interested in. Um, even if it's just to a basic level, you don't, you don't have to like reach some crazy high level or whatever, but you may find that whenever you get started with a language and experiment with it, that you like it and you do want to take it to that level. And you know, resources like Anki and using the instructions that you can find on like Refold or my website, you can use Anki to bring yourself there. All right. Very cool. So get out there. Uh, don't be afraid to output. Yeah. Or input. Do both, really. You should both. I agree. I think yeah. you should be doing both. No, no output phobia here. Yeah. Cool. Well, Levi, the language guy, Zephyrd, thank you so much for coming on. It's great, actually. Again, I can't say it's great to like meet you because we've we've occupied the same spaces, but like never really directly yeah. interacted over all these years. So, thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Refold Podcast. If you're watching the live premiere, you're in luck. Right as it ends, we have an after party over on the Refold Central Discord server. Come join us by using refold.link forward slash join and chat about the episode. 
If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to hear more, you can find older episodes to listen to on YouTube and Spotify. Let us know what you thought about the video by liking and leaving a comment below. Do you have suggestions for upcoming visitors or requests for particular topics? Please feel free to reach out to me on Discord at georgepig hashtag 5413 or via email at clayton at refold.la. Thank you all for watching and or listening, and I'll see you next week.